Arnold and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio. It's a Friday. That means we check in with our Raiders insider, former Oakland Raider, defensive back. Stanford Route is here with us. All right, right out of the gates, man. We've been euphoric this week talking about the Raiders. That was quite a game last week against Denver. How did you think the Raiders reacted to Gruden being gone? Well, clearly you could see that it galvanized the troops because everybody played well. And I think you've got a collective type of effort, uh, offensively, defensively, special teams. You see Ruggs and and Carr improving on their connection. Same thing with him and Edwards as well. Josh Jacobs doing his thing. Max Crosby, three sacks. I think he's going to go to the Pro Bowl this year. I really, really do. And I think that special teams as well. So it was was an all-around positive game. It was an all-around team victory per se and I think that when you look at everything in the AFC West I think the Raiders are looking around and they're seeing that you know what the Chiefs obviously they're not going to disappear but it seems like they just there's something missing from last season and the season before when uh, when they won the title and then you see the Los Angeles Chargers stubbing their toe against the Baltimore Ravens they see that this division is still up for grabs. It's not this stranglehold that you thought the Chiefs were going to have coming into the season, and I think that they are up to the challenge and they're ready to go get it. So what would you make of this comment? Maybe there's not much mystery to it, but I'll read it for the audience anyway and read it for you. Uh, Josh Jacobs, after the game last week, the big win against the Broncos, talked about the sideline. He said, uh, you know, there was no anxiety. It was weird. Uh, everybody was calm. You didn't have someone cussing at you or going crazy at the refs. None of that. Something bad happened, and it was like, okay, next play. I mean, that sounds like a real shot at the way John Gruden managed the sidelines, doesn't it? Oh, that's a that's a flat-out shot <laughs> across the bow uh, to John Gruden. I think that it just goes to show whenever you have a coach leave uh, in midseason, oftentimes it'll go one of two ways. The team will go ahead and tank it, and everybody will just throw their hands in the air and think like, okay, you know what? Better luck next year. Let's go ahead and just get this year over with. And then sometimes you'll see teams come together. It'll seem like they'll be galvanized and seems like all of a sudden now they're playing for each other and they have that us against the world type of mentality. And you can clearly see right now in this situation for the Las Vegas Raiders, the latter has has come into effect. And I like what Josh Jacobs said because now you can see everybody now has a chip on their shoulder. Now everybody has an extra bit of motivation because if they were to go and make the playoffs or win the division this season – after going through the scrutiny, after going through the you-know-what storm that they had to go through a couple weeks ago with your coach saying certain things in emails from years back that's misogynistic, it's racial, it is homophobic, it's all of that. That is just, That just is even that much more of a triumphant performance or a triumphant season for the Las Vegas Raiders to be able to overcome that and win the division or also go to the playoffs, I think that would be big for them and their confidence. With Greg Olson now calling the plays and and Gruden out, do you see the Raiders now being hyper-aggressive, especially with Ruggs and using uh, Kenyon Drake a lot more? I think that that uh, it remains to be seen. Obviously, I like what I saw against the Denver Broncos uh, uh, on Sunday afternoon, but obviously that was just one game. The Raiders are going to have to go ahead. They're going to have to do this against the Broncos again. They're going to have to do this against the Chargers again. I'm sorry, not do it again. Not do it again. They're going to have to play better against the Chargers, and then you still got two times going against some Kansas City Chiefs that are not going to be an easy out. So, and then you got the Cowboys on Thanksgiving. So you still have a myriad of uh, of good teams remaining on the schedule that you're going to have to go ahead and you're going to have to step up again. So I think it remains to be seen, but I like what I saw game one against the Denver Broncos on Sunday afternoon. It seems like Carr is having a 
a, a magnificent level of confidence in his younger receivers where at times you can see he was just throwing it up and just trusting that, you know what, Ruggs is going to go get it. Edwards is going to go get it. He threw a beautiful touch pass on the wheel pattern. I forget to what running back it was. It was Drake. Was, it was Drake. I, yeah, it was Drake. A beautiful he, pass. Yeah, exactly. Like beautiful touch pass. So I think that it just goes to show right now that whenever your quarterback is playing at that high of a level, the offensive coordinator, whoever's going to be calling the plays, is obviously going to have a greater level of confidence in him to go ahead and let him sling that rock all around the field. Stanford Rout, the former Raiders here with us on a Friday in Cofield and company. We're getting ready for the Eagles in town against the Raiders. One last thing on what happened last week, not to be Debbie Downer, but you know, let's uh, slam on the brakes a little bit here. Based on what we saw last night from the Broncos against Case Keenum and the Browns, maybe the Broncos just aren't that good, Stanford. Well, I think that uh, obviously coming into this season, we all knew that the Broncos had a pretty good defense. Uh, you can see Kyle Fuller has not lived up to expectations. That's why you see Darby and Sertain now being the main starters, Bryce Callahan in the slot. And I think that coming into this season, Vic Fangio, he knew I need a quarterback that's going to take care of the ball. Drew Luck is more of a gunslinger. We all know that he's got more arm talent than a, uh, a Teddy Bridgewater. But Drew Luck is not mature, at least not to this point in his career. You can see he was dancing on the sidelines last year. He's just very, very – He's very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's very gratuitous, or should I say he loves to give the ball away <laughs> in certain moments, and that's something that Vic Fangio did not like. So you can see Teddy Bridgewater is going to take care of the ball better, but he's not somebody that's going to just relentlessly push the ball down the field – and make those tight quarterback throws if he does not feel that he's going to be able to go ahead and complete it. And I think that right there is probably what's holding this Denver offense back a little bit is not having that gunslinger mentality, not being able to take those chances down the field because Teddy Bridgewater has a much type of different mindset when it comes to putting the ball in harm's way versus a Drew lock. So I think that that right there is probably the biggest Achilles heel for the Denver Broncos because you can see their defense plays pretty good. Even last night, they gave up 100 yards to, I believe it was over, it was over 100 yards to, what is it, Dearness Johnson, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, had a phenomenal game in his first career start. So uh, other than that, like I said, the Denver Broncos got a pretty good defense, but you got to have some sort of an offensive firepower, especially when you got Judy, when you got Fan, when you got the big man, Cortland Sutton. You got to be able to go and push that ball down the field, and that's something that Teddy Bridgewater just doesn't do. So I think that when you saw they came out the gate, at 3-0, beating, I believe it was the Jaguars, uh, with several other teams that weren't really that good. It was a little bit of fool's gold, but still, nonetheless, I don't look for Denver to just be a complete wash, to be a complete easy out in the AFC West because, like I said, anytime you have a good defense, you still have a shot to win games. Stanford Rout is with us. I want to get back to John Gruden for a second. Uh, so last hour, we had uh, former Eagle-in-Chief Mark McMillan with one of his buddies who's a former Eagle and Steeler and uh, offensive lineman Barrett Brooks, and they were talking about Gruden, and Barrett said, hey, you know, Gruden's one of those guys, he just got too big for his britches, he likes to talk a lot of junk. What he said was completely ridiculous. In fact, he said uh, he might, if he saw him, he might punch him in the face and then pick him up and go, bro, you can't say stuff like that, but we're good, let's go have some lunch, right? But... I think yeah. I think there's a really interesting parallel, and his, we'll say, crimes are a little bit different about the bravado of the football coach getting kind of out of control. What do you think of Ed Orgeron going bye-bye, and then we see these stories out there that he was just freaking running amok around Baton Rouge like he got really full of himself? Well, 
uh, at the risk of sounding completely ignorant, go ahead and educate me a little bit real quickly on exactly what you're hearing about the details of okay, Ed, so, Ed Orgeron. So uh, he got divorced. There was some uh, womanizing, which is that's fine, but it wasn't kept under wraps. The women, the women were out there at practice. There was a picture that got out there of him, you know, laying in bed with a female. Uh, he oh allegedly made a run at a woman. Uh, the woman says, "Hey, I'm pregnant, and I also have a boyfriend." Well, it turned out to be the uh, girlfriend of an LSU administrative official. Um, there was stuff. Oh. There was stuff within the locker room, like he brought in Bo Pelini as a defensive coordinator. Yeah, within months that. of having Pelini in there, they weren't talking to each other, and apparently there was a lot of that going on. Like the Joe Brady, that whole thing worked, but after that, mm-hmm. a lot of the assistants he brought in, it just turned into like. Ed is in one office. The other guys are doing what they want. Um, wow. So Edo got you know real big on himself and lost focus of all the responsibilities of running a program like LSU. And it's, to me, it's that whole football coach thing. You're making millions of dollars. You have a lot of power. Um, mm-hmm. you, you virtually go, you know, here in Vegas, Gruden went unchecked. In Baton Rouge, no, who's going to challenge Ed Orgeron? I, just, I find that whole, hey, you got to keep it somewhat under wraps in terms of the ego when you're a coach. Yes, you do. But do you know how hard that is, Steve? And I say that because I remember Kanye West produced a song. I'm sorry. He he, uh, he wrote a song several years ago. And uh, one of his lyrics was, no one man should have all that power. Ooh. And the thing is, is that when you look at John Gruden juxtaposed to Ed Orgeron, even though it's dichotomy, college versus NFL, it's still a lot of the same similarities. And I say this, you look at Ed Orgeron, won the national title with Joe Burrow and that barrage of first round picks that he had just two years ago. And they ran through all of college football. And the thing is just like what Urban Meyer is now starting to have to understand being in the NFL, but not having that platform that John Gruden has in the NFL, but having even much more of a platform than Ed Orgeron had when he was at Ohio State. And I say this because Whenever you are winning in college football, you pretty much could run for governor of that state (laughs) and probably win. You have that much power. So think about it. For a human being, for men, you know, we got testosterone, we got egos, we got confidence, all of that. Do you know how hard that would be to know you have all that power and to not flex it? Mm -hmm. Like that would be very, very difficult as a man to know that you have all of that power, all that leeway, that big of a platform, and to not on some level flex it a little bit. So that's number one. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm just saying I can imagine how difficult that is. And then you're John Gruden. You look at him, 10-year contract, $100 million. And as long as you don't, which we now have realized, as long as you don't resign, you get all of that. Because even if they fire you, yep. they got to pay you. Yep. It's not like being a player where X amount is guaranteed. As a coach, it's fully guaranteed. So what I'm saying is I can only imagine how difficult that is to not flex that power, knowing that you have all of that at your disposal. Not saying it's right. I'm just saying I can only imagine that it's probably difficult because, you know, we're all human, especially us. Like we're men. We're egotistical. We got testosterone. We got confidence. Oh, we all everybody knows this man. We're a little stupid. We don't always think things through. So uh, I can only imagine. But nonetheless, to your point, uh, Steve, yeah, it's something that you got to make sure that you can go ahead and keep under wraps and that you can do at a moderate level. I'm just saying I can imagine that that probably was challenging uh, for John Gruden and for Ed Orgeron at certain times. 
Let's break down the Eagles offense because another thing that uh, McMillan and uh, Barrett Brooks were talking about a little earlier is the frustration with the Eagles offense, especially when they rely heavily on RPOs instead of just straight runs. And those guys were saying RPOs essentially in the NFL are a freaking joke. They're easy to defend. I would not go that far when I say they're easy to defend. And I say that because when you look at the NFL landscape, obviously Drew Brees has passed on several years ago. Paid Manning passed on. And you got Tom Brady. You got Aaron Rodgers. You got Big Ben. And you got a couple other ones. You got Russell Wilson. A couple other ones. I don't want to forget any names. But you look at these new age quarterbacks. You look at Lamar Jackson. He's having a pretty good season out there in Baltimore. You look at Pat Mahomes, who came from Texas Tech, who was coached by Cliff Kingsbury. You look at a Josh Allen, who came from Wyoming and now playing very, very well for the uh, Buffalo Bills Monday night, notwithstanding, even though they lost, he played a heck of a game as well. So the reason why you're starting to see a lot of these co- a lot of these quarterbacks come into the league and being able to play at a much younger clip and being able to play at a higher level than a lot of their predecessors is because of the RPO. Because what it does is it simplifies things for the quarterback. Because no matter what you do as a linebacker or as a safety, you're wrong. Because it's an RPO, run pass option. So while they're faking the handoff, if the linebackers are over committing and they're over pursuing, that opens up everything right behind them, the slants, the digs, things like that. That's why you saw Colin Kaepernick have such a great success early on in 2012 with the San Francisco 49ers. And you look at who his number one targets were. Anquan Bolden, Vernon Davis, slot receiver, tight end, because they're part of the middle part of the field. You look at the number one receivers for the Baltimore Ravens. They're the ones who get the most targets. It's the tight ends because they're the ones who are closest inside the feet, inside the formation. So I don't think that it's a joke. I think that when it's ran well, it is very hard to defend for a defensive coordinator, for a defender, because whatever you choose or whatever you do, you're wrong. (laughs) So if you don't go and you don't attack the run the right way, they're going to hand it off. If you go ahead and you attack it the way it's supposed to be, those slants by the slot receivers, the tight ends, things like that are wide open. And so what it does is it, it opens up the, the, uh, the windows even more to where these young quarterbacks, they don't have to make quarterback throws like the same type of throws you see Aaron Rodgers make. The same ones you see Tom Brady make or Drew Brees last year. Those pinpoint where, you know what, if that ball was three inches to the left, three inches to the right, it might would have been picked off. you got to be able to make those types of throws. And a lot of, for a lot of these younger guys coming in, they're not able to do that at a consistent level. So the RPO makes it easier for them. And then you start to see a lot more plays, a lot more stats, things like that. I remember Rod Woodson told me back 10 years ago when he was my DB coach for the Oakland Raiders, And he said, guys, there are quarterbacks right now in this league throwing for 4,000 yards that aren't even that good. And at the time, it was very perplexing for him to say that, or should I say for me to understand that. But now, as I'm older, I get it. Just because somebody's putting up a lot of stats doesn't mean that they're actually really a good player. They're just putting up a lot of good stats. And with these offensive coordinators now being even more and more advanced as they are, it makes it easier to have a lesser talented quarterback still being able to put up numbers, put up stats along the elite level, or should I say the elite talented uh, type of quarterback. So I don't know where uh, exactly what he's, what he's using to assess the RPO. Maybe it's the well, lack of production or the lack of 
execution for the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of other teams are doing the same thing, and they're having a lot of success. Well, I think the biggest part that they were mentioning is that the R is non-existent because Miles Sanders is averaging nine carries a game. So they're like they're yes. not establishing yeah. the threat of the run. So no one no one buys that the ball is actually going to get on Miles Sanders or Kenneth Gainwell. Uh, what do you think happens in this game? It's actually a very short spread, even though the Eagles aren't having you know a, a great season at two and four. Raiders are minus three. Uh, the Eagles were getting blasted last week by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on Thursday Night Football. Then they went ahead, came back, made some plays late on, and then that it somewhat made it a little bit of a game. So uh, I'm hoping that the Las Vegas Raiders can take care of business. I don't need a blowout, but I don't need a nail-biter either. I remember a couple weeks ago they played the Miami Dolphins without Tua, and it goes to overtime. Now, luckily, they were able to pull that game out, but I think the football gods were able to go ahead and right this ship because – <laughs> the very next week, they get blasted by the Los Angeles Chargers on Monday Night Football. So I'm hoping that they can go ahead, get in, get out, get a victory, be 5-2, and two, going into the bye week where everything is the, – the spirits are high. Okay, you know what? We got the John Gruden saga out of it, out of, out of the way. We're now ready to go ahead and get on this stretch run and uh, make this uh, make this playoff push. So I think this has the makings, the setup of being an upset. I'm hoping that that's oh, no. not what happens. But the Raiders just had a nice victory against the Denver Broncos. You had your head coach resign a couple weeks ago. You're 4 and 2 right now. The Philadelphia Eagles are 2 and 4 like you just said. They lost last week to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You know, at, at times as a player you think, "Okay, we well, you know we got this game. We're just going to walk onto the field and we're just going to easily get the victory because, you know, Philadelphia is going to lay down right in front of us. They get paid every Tuesday also, <laughs> so they're not going to go ahead and just allow this to be a cakewalk unless the Raiders go ahead and make it a cakewalk by their execution, by their physicality, and by their attention to detail on all three phases of the game. I'm hoping that's what happens so we do not have a, a, uh, a setback going into the bye week. You don't want to go into a bye week after suffering a, suffering a loss against a team that you shouldn't have lost to because then you got to sit on that for two whole weeks. So I'm hoping – uh, just for their sake, they go ahead, pull out the victory. Don't need to be a blowout, but it also definitely – I don't want to be a nail-biter because this is my bye week. I don't have a game to call. I want to enjoy it. So uh, for my own selfish reasons, I want to be a nice, uh, relaxing, easy game to uh, watch. Yeah, no need to get all worked up on a Sunday. Just win the game, please. Uh, St- Stanford, we appreciate it. That was awesome. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good weekend. All good, Steve. Be good, man. Talk to you soon. There he is, Stanford Route, our Raiders insider. He played for the Oakland Raiders, filling us in on what's going on around the National Football League. Right now, time for a giveaway, 364-1100, Caller 7 and 8, we got a couple of VIP packages for Crazy Horse 3. That is the site of the after party following the LVR game. It's the closest joint to the stadium, you walk right across Russell, and you're in with hundreds of beautiful ladies at Crazy Horse 3 Gentlemen's Club. Caller 6 and 7, you get a VIP pack. They'll treat you to a table and lots of other stuff. Free admission. You can bring uh, three other friends with you. Ari will hook you up. 364-1100, And I'll be there hosting the after party from 4 to 7 with a bunch of prizes. So if you don't win here, come on down. Enjoy all the spoils of the best after party in town at Crazy Horse 3. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield & Co. The 4 
o'clock football frenzy is presented by Dustin DeHart of Nova Home Loans. Call him now at 702-577-2600. Roll it on. Two guys who like football. After talking to a bunch of guys who played football, Willie! All right, here we go. Down the stretch, second half of the show, Eagles and Raiders on Sunday. We'll get to some college football. Mm. I got something for the Eagles fans coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. I know who you are. I know you real well. Okay. So I got something coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, there's a little storm brewing about... Uh, Jason Kels, mm-hmm. Kelsey, as uh, some other people call him, and and his critique of other athletes in the market. So we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Give me a little crunch, crunch. <laughs> well, let's get to the college football here last night, Willie. I know you weren't out there, but you know what was going on and what happened. Damn it! Frustrating night. Rebels go out. They're in good shape at the end of the first half. They're up 17-3. Then disaster strikes. Then in the second half, things bogged down offensively. We can go through some of the details, and then they lose 27-20 for the fifth time in the seven losses. They had ball in hand with a chance to tie or win the game because they could have won the game last night. Had they scored a touchdown and gotten a two-point conversion, they could have won it right then, but they lost. And they're now 0-7. And I read a lot of the comments. I think there's a lot to this story that's worth discussing. But I, you know, I read a lot of the comments about, hey, fire this guy. That ain't gonna happen anytime soon. I think you need to know what's going on with UNLV football and the build. But uh, the game itself was very frustrating. And obviously, I've been around every game, and some losses are different than others. That one, like the Utah State loss, sucked. Yeah, and that was heartbreaking. Yeah, I don't even know how to describe last night's loss was freaking gut wrenching, and you could see even Marcus Arroyo was like, oh "My God, very frustrated." Austin Ajake came in after the game, uh, one of the veteran linebackers. You know, he was devastated. It's tough. It's tough, but they did little things in the game the, to lose I, to lose it. You know, I I, I watched. Uh, I, it was as I we texted before the game. I was just dead. Physically, mentally, I just I needed. So I, I watched the game. I watched the first half. It was seventeen to three, and then the late touchdown, the turnover to the late touchdown. And I woke up just afterwards, and I'm watching like the the post game. And I said, "This just has an eerie feeling." And I checked the score, and there it was again. And I just couldn't believe it because what I watched was a team that I watched. San Jose look like what we would expect from UNLV. Like UNLV has come out the last couple of weeks. They played hard. The last four games, single possession games, single score games, the Rebels are playing hard. They're just not putting forth 60 minutes and they're causing, you know, they're committing critical mistakes at the wrong time. I know that, you know, the the two big question marks on Arroyo last night was, 
you know, the, the call at the end of the first half, should he have just knelt on it instead of letting Charles? I don't know about that one as much. But, of course, the the one with fourth and one, nine minutes left. Again, two two weeks in a row with nine minutes left play calling is a question mark because last week it was, you know, we've talked about the just, you know, the, the got, two passes. Got a little conservative yeah. on three straight series. Yeah, and then this one. and then well, I'll, say, I'll say they got conservative on two of the series, then they got aggressive on the other series, so then it kind of brought the question about inconsistency because they passed a couple times right. on one of the series when it looked like they were trying to advance the ball but also run some clock. But last night last was, night was just... frustrating because, well, I'll say first of all, on the Charles William fumble at the end of the first half, right. um, clearly what they're trying to do there is they're being conservative, they want to get to the half, but they've got a guy who last week busted off a 75-yard run. Sure. So they're giving it to him. I cannot remember the last time Charles Williams – Fumbled and lost the ball, yeah. so that was shocking. They San Jose State uh, made a great play. It sucked. It sucked, and then they get a touchdown. So like all the momentum of the first half was just the airs let out of the bag, and yeah. then you got to get it going again in the second half. And then I think the big question is, what is the goal when you're down? Well, I'll say this first of all. I'll ask you. You're winless. You got a 39-yarder to take a 23-20 lead. Your kicker's made 16 field goals in a row. You made a 53-yarder earlier in the game. What do you do? Do you do you go for it on fourth and one? Because, hey, you're winless. You know what? Don't rely on kickers. I know this whole thing. You know, our buddy John Murray down at the Westgate's like, you know, kicking is for losers. But your kicker had made 16 in a row. And I get on Mike McCarthy all the time. 39 yards on a field goal is not 50, 52, 57. Am I wrong? Like, should Arroyo have just said, we got to win. Let's go for broke. No, go for it on fourth and it. one and get the ball closer. No, he's got to go for it. You got to go, you, okay. you go for it on that one because you're going for the go-ahead, sure. But at the same token, because of the length, regardless of, of the streak, this you know, look at the streak. The, the streak of field goals. What's the what's the average yards? You know what I mean? It's not as long as that one. So and and there's plenty of time if he misses it where you know, at least you're going for it. You're fired up here. The ter- there's a, it's a di- I think that there's a little bit of a mental difference in, in, in the sideline momentum. They stop you on fourth one or you miss the field goal. They block the field. You know, there's different momentum swings. I just think that you have to go for it there and use some aggressiveness. Maybe in the back of his mind, he's thinking, well, at the end of the first half, he fumbled the ball. So maybe he, maybe who knows what he's thinking, but I think – so he decides to go for the field goal, but you have to go for it there. You have to go for the push. You have to look at what's going to work, and I think you need to go for it on that fourth and one. Go for the win. What about the final drive? So they they have a chance to tie the game, yeah. a two-point conversion, win the game. They get the ball with just over seven minutes left. It's deep in their own territory. Friel had to convert a bunch of long uh, third-down plays. Now let's just say Friel has I'll say this. grown up a lot. Uh, he has, and he made some big plays. Yeah. Um, the pressure was immense in terms of that defensive line. I told you how good the defensive line was, and they yeah. got stronger and stronger as the game went yeah. along. And by the way, the Rebels' left tackle, Clayton Bradley, went out early in the game, so they had Davion McDaniel playing on the left side, and then Tiger Shanks is back on the right side, and Tiger's been in and out because he's had trouble protecting the against the edge rusher. Um, so yeah. you're trying to manage this drive. I get the concept. I think a lot of people are like, man, you you used all seven minutes to go down the field. Why not try to get like a two-for-one situation? You know, play kind of a hurry-up, frenzy style, get moving, get moving, get moving. But they mixed in a bunch of runs and a bunch of throws in the middle of the field. Do you think that was a mistake? Well, I don't know necessarily if, if you want to force it within seven minutes and try to play hurry-up and then count on your defense. I'd, I'm not sure – 
if you want to go that route and you want to utilize the clock to 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 go for the and you have to wonder. I don't know if anybody asked. I guess it, it's kind of was be out of line to ask that at that point, especially how they lost. But was the mindset that it? W- do you think he would have went for two? So was he? Go, did I he think use, that's important. Did, did he use the? It is very yeah. important. Because, I also think it's important what to to see what he thinks about his defense if San Jose yeah. State gets the ball back. Right. So if you're using the entire clock, maybe his thought process is: I got to get down there. We're going to go for the win there. You know, Kyle Harmon comes in there untouched, and I obviously they don't expect that. So I mean, and that was let's a, let's uh, pay some bills here real quick, right. and yep. I want to come back. Was that targeting or not at the end of the game? Dustin DeHart of Nova Home Loans brings you the 4 o'clock football frenzy. Dial 702-577-2600 now. Home prices have never been higher and interest rates have never been lower. Get your mortgage tune up today by calling 577-2600. You're live with the Fat Pack on Cofield and Company. I don't care if the sun don't shine. End of the UNLV game. Cameron Friel just gets smashed by Kyle Harmon, untouched off the edge. Was that targeting? I was enjoying the music. Oh, I'm sorry. When he brings back a little bit of the Rat Pack, I, you know, I'm always... Sorry, but, guys. Okay, so anyway. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Dino. <laughs> got, got some business to get done here. Was it targeting on... Kyle Harmon, this is always a very tricky deal. I I find that uh, uh, NCAA officials are hypersensitive on the targeting thing. Whether you think it was targeting or not, I believe a flag should have been thrown so they could take a look at it. They should. Right? What does that hurt? If they didn't take a look at it, then that's a mistake. But I'm looking at this game over. This angle that I have up, and I'm and I'm just basically I'm grabbing the scroll bar and I'm going back and forth as he connects back and forth to the to to it. And I listen to. to Caleb's call on a Caleb Herring, Caleb Herring, former quarterback, and he was irate. Now, I'm looking at it, and I see that Kyle Harmon comes in, and he immediately, as he gets close, he drops his entire upper body, bends his knees, and he's going in to hit the chest. At the exact same, and he's going full thrust, full throttle, because he went in untouched. Cameron Friel sees him in peripheral vision, and he ducks down to, in a sense, he's like crouching in a standing-up fetal position to not get hit. So obviously his helmet drops. The top of Kyle Harmon's crown comes in, and as he approaches him now, his arms are open in a perfect defensive stance to tackle. If Friel is standing up, he's going to hit his chest. At that point... Harmon is not even looking at him because he's down in a defensive stance and Friel tips his head low. So he comes in and the crown meets the ma- uh, the face mask. But I truly believe that Friel, in a sense, his somewhat protection of himself caused the helmet to helmet. I do not think it was targeting, targeting because the picture I'm looking at right now where I stopped the scroll bar, uh, Kyle Harmon is very low. And if Friel was standing up straight, he would have hit him in the chest. It would be a perfect tackle. The problem is that Friel dropped down, and he couldn't change his momentum. So I, I don't think it's targeting. And I think you're being really nuanced with your description here. I yeah. don't think there's much nuance when they throw these targeting flags. I see it all the time where I'm like, well, there's two bodies in motion. Clearly, the defensive player can't change when the offensive player moves. Right. They don't differentiate. They the flag don't. gets thrown. You're right. You're absolutely right. And I agree with you. And then, that, and then the review happens, what and then we can right, study the review. They, that, but that's what I'm doing. So, so, so you're doing the review. I'm doing the review. If the if, Now, if you're asking me if on site they should have thrown something to review it, 100%. Because it looks like he, he hits him in the head. 
But I don't think it's targeting. I think that I think that they review it. They should have reviewed it, but it's coming back not targeting. I'll also say, and I wasn't very close to the play because I was probably what uh, about twenty-seven yards away in the end zone. Yeah, uh, that thing that thing happened so fast. When I first saw it, I'm like, oh my god! I think he just broke his ribs. And then someone was like, oh, that could have been targeting. I'm like, oh, I didn't know he hit him that high. Uh, and and the play was obviously and it was a. Yeah. The I'm going to tell you the, real quick. The reason that people are saying targeting also. When he hits it, he hits him so hard yeah. that his neck snapped back. Yep. But if he again, if he were to hit him, if he was if if Friel had a target and he would have thrown it, stayed up to throw it to try to complete the pass, he'd have got nailed right in the chest, in the sternum. So Yeah, not to joke about it. I, I swear if uh if uh Friel had started like flopping on the ground, uh, yeah. there would have been a flag like ten seconds later. Because yeah. that sometimes happens too when you know the the reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And instead I mean he Man, he was trying to hold on to that ball. Like I, when you watch the replay, he like because yeah. you're right, he did crunch down. He's like, I yeah. do not want to fumble this because we have some time left. Yeah. And then unfortunately, he had some time left. But Shelton Zeon, who actually didn't chip block Harmon, yeah. I don't know if he didn't see him, but he freaking like pulled a calf and is like limping back. I'm like, this is the it's just a perfect storm for this. Like it's, you know, they they made a lot of mistakes and they could have won the game, but it was just everything went wrong on that play in particular. Three six four eleven hundred caller seven right now. Three six four one one zero zero. It's our port of subs tailgate tray giveaway. You get a six foot sub all chop 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 chop. Good deal, right? You get that. You also qualify for a Yeti cooler giveaway. Three six four eleven hundred caller seven. You can get your own tailgate tray at twenty plus port of subs around the Las Vegas area. It's all brought to you by Philly Volvo Cars of Las Vegas. Caller seven right now. Three six four eleven hundred. We're gonna check in with one of the uh, guys behind the counter. We haven't had him on before, but we're real fired up to talk about the uh, boss over at Caesars and William Hill. Craig Mucklow will be with us here on Cofield and Company. Finley Toyota. They'll do anything to sell you a car. No Toyota problem is too tough, too large, or too small. Keep your Toyota running like a Toyota. It's Cofield and Company's Eye on Sports Betting. Let's get into the sports betting scene this weekend. Of course, we've got the ALCS game number six on the way in a matter of minutes as the Red Sox try to stay alive, trailing the Astros 3-2 to two in the series. From Caesars, from William Hill, Craig Mucklow is here with us. And I know you guys have some concern because there's a lot of money on the Houston Astros on the future book. Praying for a Red Sox win, whether we win or lose on the game tonight. But, uh, we need a game seven, that's for sure. So, Craig, I've seen you quoted in a lot of spots, and especially in the local paper, about liability, about you know losing weekends. And you seem to have a, a different mentality in terms of what you put out there. Because I, I, we love all the sportsbook guys around town, but often we see them and they're like, oh, we got annihilated, it was really rough. And you kind of take a different spin on it. I try to be honest, even when it's through the tears of uh, customers having historical weekends. <laughs> I'm certainly not one to crack open a bottle of Knob Creek. And I'll steal that from a, a fellow sportsbook director. Sure, our buddy Tony Miller, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's a very knowledgeable person. I love Tony a lot. You can hear the same thing from a million people in all the books. So sometimes I'll I'll say something that's probably not not the best with the bosses. But I'll be honest. I, I do think, in a way, though, uh, either way you present it, it's almost it almost is a marketing move to to come out and go, oh, we got we got beat up. Um, this is it's not a bad thing 
to lose every once in a while. You're right. The bosses don't want to hear that. But the fact that we get to win, the average schnook like myself, you get encouraged because you're like, I can win some weeks. And then guess what? Now I have more money and you know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to buy a house with it. I'm going to bet more. Yeah, look, you bet within your means, obviously. Right. Uh, don't bet with what you shouldn't be betting with. It's nice to see customers win once in a while and, you know, have success. And right now our customers are, are red hot. It's um, I, in the 25 years in this industry, I haven't seen um, I haven't seen a run like this for customers in back-to-back weeks in the NFL for certain. So congratulations to them. Uh, they're proving to be better than our traders right now. So long may it continue for a little while. The uh, the Browns and Broncos game last night, we're talking to uh, the boss at Caesars, uh, Craig Mucklow is here with us on Cofield and Company. The game last night, did you guys have, were there middle opportunities out there that people get early enough on the game? What, so what happened? <laughs> I was on my hands and knees praying for a field goal at the end of the game to get rid of that three-point spread um, or a Browns stop at the, the end of the Broncos drive. So we laid, we laid uh, Denver plus four early. The injuries came. Line closed one and a half Browns, and then right on post we laid the Browns minus one and a half. We did see a lot of Denver money line money throughout the week, so the spread brought a tear to my eye. Um, <laughs> we got some back on the money line, but um, the under cashed as well for the for the better. So as I said, everything they touch right now turns to gold. Should be the next Bond film. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, do you think? If Baker Mayfield goes down for the season, we have to see Case Keenum play more. Do you think that the the spread between those two guys is only like two and a half, three points, the difference? Yeah, somebody else actually asked me the same question yesterday, and I, be- I believed at the time that there wasn't a huge drop-off from Mayfield to Keenum, especially with Keenum having familiarity with his coach previously. Uh, he's a proven vet, and the, the market tells you that the market was a two, two-and-a-half-point drop-off between those two quarterbacks, and there, there's the... There's the proof of the pudding. I don't think the GMs of football teams, though, compare the spread to the next contract. You stole the thought right out of my head. There's something freaky going on right now. It, it would be I, – I love when we use the Vegas numbers and apply it to the real world because think about it. Baker Mayfield's going to come up for his contract here. He's probably going to ask for you know top 10 quarterback money. So we're talking a minimum of like $27 million a year. And if Case Keenum is only two and a half, three points worse – can that guy possibly be worth $28 million a year? <laughs> I'm not the, uh, clearly why I'm not a GM of a team because right. I would use the Vegas spread and the difference to right. determine a contract. Right. I probably have my players. Um, but yeah, it's, it's Keenum has got them a win as well last night. So it's possible that Mayfield tries to play a game when he shouldn't, when he's injured, ends up putting himself out for the season, and then he's in a bit of a predicament. And he's not Dak Prescott, and Prescott's proving that. You know, he's, he was worth the money following the injury and the gamble he took. Uh, Craig Mucklow is with us. So, damn, now I need to – I have to get on my uh, William Hill app and look at futures. I'll have to look in a second. But uh, maybe the Bengals are looking that much more – well, the Ravens are in the division too. So, um, But, yeah, I think I would fade the Browns for the division title. So, l- let's talk about this weekend. Um, it's, uh, it's only Friday, so a lot of the volume comes in over the weekend. Do we have a most bet game in the NFL right now? I was thinking Casey and the Titans, maybe the Bears and the Bucks because they're public teams. Maybe Green Bay because it's a public team against football team. Is is that? Am I on on the right path there in terms of the most volume? It is early, and you'll see a lot of the money come Sunday morning, Saturday evening um, after everybody cashes their Alabama tickets. Um, at the moment, it's the Ravens and the Bengals. It's the only game, I believe, where there's two teams with winning records against each other. Um, KC and Tennessee will get a lot of marquee action, that's for sure. Um, 
it's interesting because we've seen significant money for the Ravens this week off a customer who's bet the Bengals four times this year and got them correct all four times. Mm. And this year is this week he's on the, the Ravens. So I don't know if he's a fan of the Bengals and now all of a sudden realized, whoops, Lamar Jackson averages 21 points per victory. Or he just knows the game inside out. So um, we respected we respected that bet, especially when he plays on a Bengals game. So you slipped one in there. That was interesting. Yeah. Uh, Craig Bucklow from William Hill and Caesars is with us about the Alabama money. This is really fascinating. And I've jumped on Alabama in the first half a couple of times. But it looks to me like you guys have corrected this. Well, I don't know if you're going to win. But Alabama is 25 for the game over Tennessee. You guys have a 16 in the first half. And we'll still lay it, and they'll most likely still cover it, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh, such a defeatist attitude. I don't know how you guys are keeping the doors open. Come on, Craig. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. That, that is, I mean, you do have to do If the betters don't respond when you're pushing it from whatever it should be, you know, 13 or 13 and a half to 16, then I guess you can keep pushing it up. And if they keep betting it, take it. Buy and sell, isn't it? Eventually, we'll, we'll get to a point where the betters do not want any interest in Alabama first half, and then there's the correct number. And eventually the, the gap between Alabama and the rest of the field will close up and then we'll start lowering the number again when, when they get competitive. But it's a trend that the public love. It's a trend that's a winning trend. Um, so therefore you'll always see uh, a difference between the full game and the first half, especially in uh, situations like this. So college football, I've always been told by real sharps, uh, you don't tease in college football. It's just not a good bet. NFL, people have fallen in love with the teasers and it looks like, uh, well, I'll ask you first, how dangerous have teasers been this year against you guys? We always see teasers across the key numbers, and we're always mindful of them. Um, we've been lucky. We've got a couple beat, um, but obviously last weekend, I don't think we got any of them beat. So um, it's a very, very popular bet, especially in Nevada. Um, so we're always mindful and we always keep an eye on it. Um, but it's a tremendous bet. You get to buy points for, for a value, and um, it gives you interest in a lot of the games for a long long period of time unless there's a huge upset. Yeah, it looks like uh, one of the real uh, key teasers, coveted teasers this weekend, could be Patriots minus seven. You get, uh, well, you're not through seven, but you get off seven, uh, yeah. plus Green Bay. So I, I wonder if you're going to get a bunch of action on that on, on uh, Saturday and Sunday. That'll definitely come for sure, and especially um, the Patriots are playing the Jets, and the Jets, uh, I, being a Dolphins fan, I know the AFCs rather well. <laughs> Yeah, you're teasing the money line onto the Pats, really, against uh, a Jets team that has, has not been great this year. Craig Michaelos with us, William Hill, Caesars. If you sign up for a William Hill mobile account, uh, you get an extra 50 bucks into your account for a new account holder. So take advantage of that, and you can do it at places like Silver 7s. We broadcast there on uh, Thursday, so you can take care of all your business initially to sign up for the account at the window. Let's close on a couple of uh, NFL notes, uh, one with the game but also with the futures. Um, I would think Arizona clearly would be the biggest shocker, the biggest jump in odds from right after the Super Bowl uh, last year or earlier this year uh, to where we are right now. I, I think Arizona was around 50-1, to 45-1 to 1 to win the Super Bowl, and now they're all the way up to, what, 750, plus 750? Yeah, the Cardinals are plus 750. Um, if the Super Bowl was decided today, we'd be happy with a Cardinals win right now. Um, but they, they have been the big surprise. They, they threatened it uh, a year or so ago, and Murray's proving to be an MVP type of player. He's only really had one one let down. I think that was the 49ers game. Um, the public love betting them right now. Uh, they're exciting to watch. And they're a big spread this weekend as well. So, you know, they'll only get shorter as Murray's MVP odds are correlated to them. 
So one last question about uh, how local betting affects the national line, because uh, if folks don't know, Caesars and William Hill is now in multiple states. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a hand up here and rep the Vegas betters. The Raiders are here. I don't know if people are as crazy on the Raiders side as say they were on the Golden Knights side and still are on the Golden Knights side. Is this market a little too gaga over the Raiders? Because I'm actually seeing I'm seeing a lot of Eagles money come in, right? Minus three looks attractive for the Raiders. Um, so how has this market reacted to the Raiders? Do the betters go too crazy on the Raiders? Yeah, look, the, the number's the number, and at such a point, it's it depends what the customers are that are betting the number as opposed to the volume of the, the, the bets and the tickets and, and the stakes. Right now, we've about a four-to-one ratio on the Eagle spread, but then we're the reverse on the money line right now for the Raiders. So okay. we want the Raiders to win by one or two, uh, and that would be a good result for us. We will see Raiders' money come Sunday because of the hometown team, but the Knights are the team of Vegas right now. No offense to the, the Las Vegas Raiders, but the Knights are an original team. Um, they've got the love, obviously the impact of 1 October and the, the season starting soon after. If the Raiders make the playoffs, then maybe people will change their mind off they win a title, but it's the Knights city right now. Is there an area in the country, say it's New Jersey with the, the Jets, the Giants, the Eagles, or uh, Illinois with the Bears, or I've also heard like, Hey, Biloxi, Mississippi, they get crazy over the Saints where you like you start to worry because the public money comes in so much. And, and again, this is not a knock on other areas of the country. It kind of is. Um, I think we're a little more experienced here in betting. Like, is there an area of the country where we're like, oh, my God, we're getting so much action on the home area team? We always look at a big picture. So and we try not to move via state because of the money for the hometown team. So we're one big company. We look at the picture as an overall book. So. You know, we'll see East Coast money for the Eagles and we'll see West Coast money for the Raiders. They'll hopefully they offset. So you do see some kind of liability. The one we do see at the moment is with Arizona just launching uh, and the Cardinals can't lose. Yeah. Uh, so that's the one we're always mindful of. Um, and not every hometown team can win the, the title that year. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see the uh, the love for the home teams, but that's why the spread's there as well. So we try and land, try and get it as close as we can and share the love. All right, Craig. Most important question: um, I see the national commercial campaign. I see JB Smooth, who's playing Caesar. Are you getting the rewards? Uh, I haven't got the Caesar's cologne yet, or the Caesar's uh, <laughs> uh, the jug, but uh, I'm not personally getting the rewards other than. Um, we've got a great customer base. We've got a tremendous advertising with JB Smooth. Um, but the customers, uh, we're, we're going to add market share. We're trying to make what's best for the customer experience. Uh, and if you're not receiving the best customer experience, send an email to customer service. They'll forward it to me and I'll make it my priority to make sure that whatever your grief is or gripe, I'll look to fix it. We want our, we want our Caesars to really enjoy being on the app, have fun and have entertainment and have a run for your money. Craig, that was awesome, man. Good conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. Cofield and company will be back in minutes right here on ESPN Las Vegas.